Street Smart Podcast, this time from OTC 2023 down here in, in Houston at NRG Stadium. And I'm talking with Austin Blaney. And Austin is uh, an interesting contact of mine. His wife and I uh, do jiu-jitsu together, and uh, she is an absolute savage. Austin at times will come to jiu-jitsu, but that is, uh, that is almost as rare as a Bigfoot sighting. But we were, uh, we were lucky enough to connect and connect in kind of a unique setting. So, Austin, thanks so much for coming on the show. You bet. Yeah, I was, uh, I was looking forward to the opportunity for doing some kind of an interview where I was introduced to the interviewer because him and my wife take turns choking each other. We don't really take turns. I mainly you just moanly. choke her unconscious yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. every chance I get. Um, but she, she's an absolute beast. And she doesn't man. give you many chances. She, well, she doesn't give them to you. You've got to yeah, take you gotta them go take for them. sure. You've got to get them. Uh, but Austin has a company, um, Paisano. And Paisano does what, Austin? Dimensional control, Dimensional which is control. Uh, it's a whole conversation just on its own. Just, That's a whole uh, fancy uh, it's a whole, survey work, right? I have people pull me over and ask me if I do fantasy games, like if I get wizards and stuff, interdimensional stuff. I get into some of that, but uh, it's because of the Texas A&M stuff. It must be. It's okay. It must be. Um, so, but let's start. We're going to get to Paisano and yep. kind of how that originated and what you're doing with that uh, and and everything. But we want to start at the beginning because that's the best place, right? And so, where were you born? Where were you raised? And uh, and let's get started there. So, my dad's family's been from Utah since the pioneers, the Mormon pioneers went across. My mom's family's been in Texas since before the Alamo, and. Long story short, that me actually being an entrepreneur and all that, it starts with my dad being in the mountains in Peru in 1967. He was a Mormon missionary in the mountains, learned Spanish, came home, and uh, was going to Utah State and was going to be a landscape architect. And when he graduated, he had job offers from uh, San Francisco and Denver and Houston. And he sat down at the kitchen table with my grandfather, and my granddad was in World War II, and he said... They, you know, they both agreed that Denver was the same as Utah for, for the most part. Pretty much. The country. San Francisco at the time was, was bonkers, right? And they, neither, he wasn't interested in that. And my granddad said, you know, if you're going to throw in with a group of people, he said in the war, the guys from Texas are always the ones you want to be with. He's like, that's the, wherever they're at, that's where you want to be. Good guys, they take care of each other and they do all that. And he said, go to Houston. So my dad showed up in Houston with a suitcase and a bicycle and uh, actually met my mother in a park in Houston. That's the most Mormon thing I've heard, a suitcase yeah. and a bicycle. <laughs> That's super Mormon. So he shows up in Houston, uh, and, uh, and then consequently you show up in Houston. No. The, I guess I, I forget who was the president at the time, but the economy went in the can. Dad's a landscape architect, so a lot of that stuff is, is extra, extra spending. That's not required spending for most companies or homeowners. So Dad ended up sending out resumes everywhere and got a job in Memphis. So I was born in Memphis, and then they left Memphis when I was like this. I was born this big and left Memphis this big. So I was there not just long. long enough to not be born as a native Texan, right? And all my friends constantly haranguing me about that. And now that I know that's a thing, and, and you will be doing sure it too. It. So when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I actually wanted to be a cowboy for part of it, and then I, that's what I actually went to Texas A&M for, was to do adjacent cowboy-type stuff. I got a degree in rangeland ecology and management uh, with an emphasis in beef cattle management and wildlife management, and then graduated, did that, managed a bison ranch outside of Greenville, Texas for a while, and then uh, 
went to work for USDA as a ranch consultant down on the border. And that's where I was watching Roadrunners all the time and really got, got interested in that. So my dad, having been in Peru, ended up in Dallas working at a big, a big company. He was an architect first. They had him in the office, and he was just like, you know, wear the suit and tie on the drafting table, doing all that. And he's an outdoorsman, so he, 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 he quickly became unhappy with that and wanted to be outside. Well, he could speak Spanish, and in the late 70s, early 80s, being able to speak fluent Spanish and being good with people, all of the workers were all, you know, immigrants from Mexico. And so he quickly took over, like, all of the architects and all of the construction guys out in the field at this company where he was at. And that went until 1984 when he uh, had a partner and decided to go on his own and start his own company. And when he quit, all of the Mexican labor that worked at the company, all of them quit at the same time and went to work for my dad. Like that level of loyalty. Wow. Treating people right. And back then, they didn't. a lot of people didn't treat Mexican immigrants well and they couldn't speak Spanish. So just yell at them in English, right? right. Yeah, right. My dad, I'm sure uh, you've seen that out so in West Texas. What's interesting is uh, my dad's company, when we lived down in Midland, we did some sort of an exchange program with Russian workers. So we sent a few people over, and then Russian, Russia sent several over. My dad was talking to them, and <laughs> they didn't speak English, obviously. And he would speak louder. And I told him, I said, they're not deaf. They just don't yeah, speak English. Yeah, they don't English. understand English, yeah. Uh, so but, so you're, you, as a child, and how old were you when your dad decided he wanted to start a business? So that was 84. I would have been nine. So you're old enough to know what was going on. Oh, and I was on the job site from probably when I was three. Oh, yeah. Like Saturdays, you know, if the Saturday was on, I wanted, to, I wanted to be in the truck. I wanted to get in the truck, go with Dad, everywhere Dad went in the truck, whatever he's doing, just ride around with him. And one of my earliest childhood memories was in Dallas. They had these two giant lakes, and they were draining the lakes to, to dredge them, to clean them out, you know, get all the silt out of them, but they were full of fish. And so my dad's on this project, and he notices this happening, and he doesn't want all these fish to get killed. So the next thing you know, he's getting truckloads of pallets brought in and all of his guys and then the tree workers had the ropes up through the trees and they're hanging out over these live oak trees and they're pulling these fish out. And, you know, this is before cell phones, before anything. And 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock on a whatever weeknight it was, he doesn't come home. So mom's freaking out. She's like, right, where right, is, right. where's Forrest at? You know, where right. is he at? And, and he's out there saving all these fish with his crew. So the next day, uh, he went back out there to do that, and he took me with him. And so I can remember they had bulldozers, all this stuff going on, and I was kind of walking around with Dad. This was when he was still employed in another company. And uh, the safest place for me to be was on a bulldozer. So, I mean, what little kid isn't totally stoked to, okay, your job is to sit on this bulldozer today. Yeah, I could do that now. Yeah. That would be awesome now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, but... And I forgot where we were going with that. Well, but. I was asking, you know, when, when, so you were old enough to know your dad was starting a business. And, and when he did that, did you at that point say, hey, man, this is something I could do later in life? Or it sounds like when you got out of college, you wanted to stay true to what your degree was in and you wanted to go into that kind of thing. And and obviously that's not what you're doing now. No. And so but, what? But, so, so my question is, when I get through that, like, was that on the, in the back of your mind when you were working, you know, down the path of your degree? And working out once you got out of school in your you know field, were you in the back of your mind at all thinking, man, I could I could absolutely uh, I could absolutely be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I'm so just I, gonna walk right through that. It's fine. That's outstanding. Yeah, you're gonna have to get some guardrails <laughs> yeah. or something. It's gonna happen more than once. I guarantee it. Probably. But that's um, okay. So let's the, see. The joys let's, of OTC recording. Oh yeah, that's why I knew it was gonna be a zoo. So if we get back to that, like, let's see, let's see, where, where can I go with this? 
So one of the things I watched with my dad that was kind of scary was he had a partner at the beginning. And the guy was just a money man. He came to dad and he said, hey, you got a hell of a reputation as a landscape architect. Everybody in North Dallas knows you. We'd like to have a, would you like to go on your own? And so he brought the money and my dad brought the contacts and the crew and he brought, uh, you know, the license and all that stuff. A year after he got started doing that, the guy just walks into the office and says, I'm bored with this. You owe me all the money back and just leaves. Oh, wow. And so dad's just, you know, and he's, uh, he's not, Pop is not a businessman as much as he is an artist and he's really good at doing the construction. He's really good at managing the guys, having a loyal workforce when he does stonework, a lot of really high-end stonework and high-end residential stuff. You're talking, you know, $100,000, $200,000 patios and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And so it takes a really high level of skill. And I grew up, all growing up, was on a job site as an apprentice stonemason from, you know, from the time I turned 12, I wanted a new bicycle. I had a bicycle, wanted a new one. Dad said, you got one, it works. If you want a new one, you got to buy it yourself. So school's out next month, you can go to work. And so I went to work. And so after that, if it was spring break, Thanksgiving, Christmas, summer, I went to work. Like, my friends went and messed around, I went to work. But when we were in high school, I could drive to the bank and go get money out of the bank, and nobody had any money. And so that was the, that was the difference. You know, I'd drive through. I, I remember one of the girls running around with us. She's like, it'd be so neat to just be able to go somewhere and get money out. Well, you, gotta, like, well, you have to earn that. You got to work. You, yeah, you got to money before you, you can just pull you, it out. Yeah, you got to work. So doing all that, and my dad's dream was for me to grow up and take over the company. But the problem with it is I don't want to live in town that far into town and deal with town that much. The other thing is, is that really what he does is an art. Like the part that makes my dad stand apart is that he does the art part and the design part. He's so good at that. And then he's also really good at taking up the level of the, the, the quality of the, of the way he builds stuff. Like he builds a stone patio you could park a cement truck on and it's not going to crack. Right. You know, he does more Portland cement in the concrete. He makes it thicker, puts more rebar. He builds everything where it's going to be there until Jesus comes back, right? It's like once and done. And the customers pay for that. And watching my dad go through all this, so watching him go through the business and then having to fight through paying off the guy that came in. I kind of watched that as I was little, and I thought, man, if I ever go down this path, I don't want any partners. Yeah. And, I, and, and there's two ways for that. There's, I don't want a hostile partner, but I also don't want a partner that's my buddy that this business turns our friendship toxic and I lose a friend over having a partner. And I've seen that so yeah. many times. Th that happens so often. That's, uh, that's happened to me several times, uh, at least twice, that I've, I've gone to work with uh, what was a close friend, and by the end of that, uh, we are no longer speaking. Yeah, and it's and it's and it, it happens frequently. Yep. And I think sometimes it's with malice, and I think sometimes it, it's just a it's just a misunderstanding. But you can't you can't get your mind out of that. You can't. At some point, it doesn't really matter what it. it's because yeah. of. It just yeah. is what it is. It is what it is. <clears throat> so you watch your dad go through the uh, the challenges with the partner. You say, man, if I if I ever do something on my own, I, were you, were you saying I don't want a partner ever, or were you saying yeah, I don't I don't, I don't really ever want a partner. So. So I do all that, and then I serve my mission in California for two years, get back, go well, that's, down to, That's rough duty. Yeah. Uh, now, where are your sons it is, right now? It is and it isn't. It where, is and it isn't. Where, so the, where are your sons right now? The younger one has been in Paraguay for 13 months, mm -hmm. and he was out in the absolute bone docks mm -hmm. baptizing people in a river. Yep. Uh, he just got moved back to the capital city. Now, that which, feels like actual mission work, yeah, not that's, California. Yeah, yeah. And then Duke, the older one, 
He's been in Newport Beach, California for about seven months. He's the same kind of deal. It's yeah. the, the struggles that you have with that are more related to trying to do missionary work with people that don't, either they're atheists or they're hostile. I mean, I had people just slam the door in my face in California and say, we have money, we don't need God. Yeah, I but mean, then at the end of that day, you have air conditioning. You do. You do. So Baxter got down to Paraguay terrible. at the beginning, and, uh, <laughs> and they had these water heaters built into the shower head. And you're talking every, nothing's OSHA, right? It's out in the boondocks. And he got in the shower, and he went to adjust the shower head, and it just shocked the crap out of him. And nice. he comes out, and all the other missionaries laugh at him. They're like, yeah, we just let everybody figure that out the hard way because – yeah, it's not going to kill you, but it'll certainly. But it's going to get. Yeah, it's going to get your one, attention. It happens a time. It's a. It's a. That's a teachable <clears throat> moment. One time. Inter, iteration one. So you go out to California to do your mission work. Come home. Previous to that, I'd gone up to the University of Arkansas for one year on a on a trombone scholarship, and just <laughs> didn't didn't like anything about Cal about that one at all. Uh, I'm sorry, we can't continue we can't uh, you we can't, can't say just gloss word, over this you can't say the word trombone and it just be like oh okay it makes sense so i played trombone all the way from fifth grade all the way through high school and then you still got a play. scholarship still, still play some still play still play a little bit it's been a while that's why you live out in the country both of the boys oh if i pull the horn out and play on my on my front porch my german shepherd goes nuts it's as good as a police siren get the so, dog to hell so the fact that that story exists means you actually do still play the trombone and that's funny I, sometimes that's hilarious it's pretty pretty rare I'll play some old Anxine on New Year's or whatever, but that's about it. But both of my boys ended up playing in the band at Conroe High. Both of them were section leader for like 30 trombones. Both of them did that, and Duke ended up uh, spinning it off into, into bass guitar. And then now he produces music and does all kinds of musical. He plays keyboards, guitar, bass, produces music. Uh, he actually had a, a fully produced song that they did for Christmas, hmm. a Christmas carol, like right before he left on his mission and got it all done. Very cool. So pretty interesting stuff. But uh, All right, so you go to Arkansas on a trombone thing, figure out that's not for you, but <laughs> yeah. keep going with this trombone. Yeah, so let's just <laughs> and then, so I get uh, back from I get back from California, and uh, I decided, okay, I'm, I'm switching gears. I'm going to go to Texas a and I was going to tell you part of the reason I didn't like Arkansas was it was too small of a school, and the whole thing was centered around the fraternities. Like, there was nothing else going on there except for the fraternities. And if you weren't in the fraternity, it was kind of a hostile deal. And so I know you, 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 you did some of the brotherhood deal on the fraternity. I was in Kappa Psi, which is the band nerd fraternity, but while I was there. But it, it was just a – A&M has a completely different culture, and there's more facets to it than just a few fraternities right. running you the You guys whole, have the fake military, and that's the cool. The fake military. We do have that. That's outstanding. <clears throat> so – you go to A&M, yeah. and you decide, I'm going to be a cowboy. So I get to A&M, and I'd failed out of Arkansas. That's another thing to think about. I did really oh, well see, on the trombone. Yeah, you, you churched up the Arkansas. But I failed Arkansas out. Arkansas wasn't really for me. Whatever. Yeah, well. You failed out of it. Failed out of there. But I wasn't interested in trying to get back in. So I go over there. <laughs> We're going to let you back in anyway. Like, no. What? <laughs> so I ended up. Uh, I wasn't interested in them not letting me back in. Yeah. My best friend in high school had finished his four years in the Corps of Cadets. At a and and so he was now out just in normal normal housing, and so uh, got a duplex with him, moved down there, and my wife is the only other person that I knew that was down there at the time. All the rest of my buddies had already finished and gone on. Bennett was one of the only ones still hanging around. So I get so to— you, you already knew Sarah. Yeah, we met in a hardware—working together in a hardware store her senior year, and it was my year after Arkansas before my mission when I was working. I had about four or five different jobs. So you're older than her? Two years. Dog. Two years older than her. You've got to take her yeah. to her prom at South Fork Ranch. I don't know how much more Texas that could be. 
It's pretty Texas. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty Texas. So she was down there, and my buddy Bennett was down there, moved in with him, and then started doing all the stuff with the LDS kids. And then I got a full-time job at t Tractor Supply and was going to night school. And while I was working at Tractor Supply, there was a guy that would come in that would chat me up all the time. His name's J.P. Bach. And he was doing his Ph.D. And he was a cowboy cowboy guy doing all this and i just chatted him up when he with a name like jp bach you have to be oh yeah a cowboy that's the most cowboy name yeah so he was doing all he was from new mexico and he was working on his phd and he was living on a ranch managing a ranch and then doing his phd and he just a lot of the stuff he was doing just sounded interesting to me and it was you know the animal science department at a&m is is like a thousand students there's just well, it's huge the a is ag right yeah it's enormous so rangeland ecology is what i actually studied and it's more it's, it's the ecology, but it has to do with, you know, huge landscape, wide, you know, it's giant areas. You're talking thousands, tens of, tens of thousands of acres and how to manage that. Prescribed burn, uh, you're talking about, you know, planting grass, you're doing stuff with helicopters, just a lot of really interesting stuff. And it's, it gets some of the bigger ranches, it gets you out on the ranches doing those things. And sure. you don't necessarily have to be 100% cowboy. I grew up in Richardson. I didn't grow up on a ranch, <laughs> so, you know, getting some of that. But... Uh, the, the uh, rolling prairies of Richardson, right. Texas don't yeah. exist. So, so getting involved in some of that, you know, and then uh, the department was really good in range. The really, really good professors, really small. It was like less than 100 undergraduates. We all knew each other. Everybody that's in your class, we all knew each other. We all carried on. You know, it was barbecues. It was just really personable. A&M is, what, 50, 70,000 students, and it's easy to get lost in the mix. Like, Sarah was in engineering. And there's like, you know, however many zillions of engineers. Right. And it's just, it's not as personal. It's not as approachable. My professors were, we were over at their houses having barbecues. It was, it was really laid back that way. So that way. was kind of your fraternity. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. The, uh, the uh, one professor who just passed away, Dr. Robert Knight, was my advisor. And he was one of our professors. And I flat out didn't want to go to work for the government for all the reasons you don't want to work for the government, right? And uh, he just kept on me. And he's like, you need to take these certain couple of classes because you won't get the highest rating that you can get as a rangeland ecologist if you don't take these couple of classes. And I just didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it. I fought him, and he finally said, just shut up and just do it. Just, just do it, Blaney. And so I did. Well, I was managing a bison ranch towards the end. We'd had both of the boys. We were going back and forth from College Station to uh, green, outside of Greenville, Texas. Had 300 head of buffalo. And the guy that owned that thing fired me with an email at midnight during dead dead week before finals my last so here i am a dad and a husband and the provider and i was completely planning on loading the truck and moving to that ranch the next week and the guy just cans me right so this was another iteration of me witnessing okay people that have a lot of money that say let's do business together and you're completely at the behest of other people that have a lot of money that can just make whatever decision they want to make at any moment and your whole life is, is on the line. So in the middle of dead week, my buddy and I had to take my horse trailer, run up to the ranch, load up my office, load up my welding machine, my tools, my saddle. Yeah, all the stuff that made its way every, there. Everything yeah. there and had to come back, parked it at my father-in-law's house up in uh, outside McKinney in Lucas, Texas, covered it with a tarp. A bunch of stuff got rained in and got ruined. And I stood there and looked at that. I'm a broke you know, 27-year-old, you know, 27, 28-year-old guy, and I'm hit broke, and I'm looking at a bunch of my stuff got ruined, and I'm thinking, I don't, you know, what, you know, that was, that was just another iteration of me thinking about, okay, 
if you have a money person that's in, in, involved. And it was a little different scenario, but it but it's kind of right. the, it's kind of it's still kind of the same. If you have somebody else that you're dependent on, they can change their mind and affect your entire life, and it, they don't even miss a beat. Yeah, and the further you go up the the food chain with those kind of people, you know, they just flip open the 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 <coughs> Wall Street Journal and start looking at stock prices and that and make decisions on that, you know. And it's just it's like that fast, and so. So but that you didn't start a business then. No. You, so what happened then was my, I had taken those classes. Yeah. And I interviewed Thank for a you, bunch professor. of ranch jobs and did a bunch. I flew all over and had a bunch of interviews for ranches and, and got referred and all this. And it was, it was just a tough time at the moment. And USDA Natural Resource Conservation Service was hiring. And, you know, I kept calling and, and the department would call me and Dr. Knight would say, do you have a job yet? And I'm like, no, sir. And I moved in with my in-laws. And so this is one of the Which big things. Which is always things. amazing. It was, it was amazing. So we had two, two little boys, Duke and Bear, two little boys, living with my in-laws. And I was working for my dad and uh, on the crew up, up in Dallas. So living at the in-laws, all the stuff in Dallas. And that went on for about, I don't know, nine or ten months. And then finally Dr. Knight said, go get, go get interviewed. And I drove over to Weatherford to one of the zone offices for NRCS and sat down and did an interview. And they said, holy crap, you're wildly qualified for all this. You're older, you're married, you're more stable, you got ranch experience, you got prescribed fire experience, you got all that, you got a, you have a half a resume to do this, you know, and they, and they basically got hired the very next week. They called me up and they said, uh, they said, we're going to give you a job. And I said, I'll take it. Yeah. And, and they said, we haven't even told you where. It doesn't you know? matter. I'm in. And they said, uh, they said uh, do you know where Benavides, Texas is? And I said, no, sir. And he said, do you, do you want to know? And I said, no, my mother-in-law doesn't live there. And he said, he just burst out laughing. Fair enough. And he said, uh, he said, all right. So the next morning, Sarah and I got up and got in the truck and drove down to Alice, Texas and out to Benavides. And I walked into the office and, I, and Felix was my boss. And, uh, and I said, hey, they just hired me. I'm down here looking for a place to live. And he said, what? And nobody had told him yet that they'd hired a, right. a newbie to be in his office. And so he's, what? And he gets on the phone, makes all these phone calls. And he was a big big Hispanic, just rough and tumble dude with a big walrus mustache. And he was yeah. a great guy. I loved working for Felix. He probably looks at this gringo that walked in. Yeah. He's like, he's not going to speak Spanish, first of all. He's that like, sucks. holy crap, you know. And so yeah. What has happened here? Yep, yep. So my Spanish got a lot better down there. I, I, all my life I've heard Spanish. You know, every morning my dad would be on the phone talking to the crew. If it was raining, anything was weird, he'd be talking to the guys. Sure. And so always in my life I've heard Spanish. And then on the job sites, everything was in Spanish. And then once I got to a certain age, which I think wasn't very much, maybe like six or eight, dad would just leave me on the job. So all the guys would be out there yeah. working, and he would just leave me there, and he's like, I'll be back in an hour. Yeah, and, they, and they're not going to speak English just because you're there. No, and they don't. Well, that yeah. none of them could they speak English. They don't really English. have it, yeah. yeah and a lot you. of the guys that worked for dad were actually, they were illiterate. So not only did they not speak, they were illiterate in any language. And so I encountered that when I worked uh, at Neighbors, uh, training a bunch of the guys, Derek workers on uh, high-angle rescue and stuff like that. You'd have guys that were... You know, they're not dumb guys. They're smart guys. No, they but just they just can't. they can't read or write, and they no. don't speak English. And you're like, okay, you don't read or write. Obviously, you don't read or write English. You also don't Spanish. Right. Okay, we'll yeah, figure this out. Got it. You just got to figure, figure it, out. it out. So, you know, I the the most common thing that I said my whole time growing up on the job site was "Como se dice?" How do you say this? Like, yeah. how do you? Or bueno. I pick this up. Bueno. Or how do you say this? Yeah. And so, the uh, it was. Two families of guys worked for Dad. One family, Ortiz family from uh, Muskie's Coahuila, worked for Pop at the beginning. And then another one started working for him in the 90s. And that family still, they're on like the second or third generation of guys. But Marcelino was the grandpa. 
and he would mix concrete and do different stuff, and I would just kind of tag around behind him. And uh, the first first summer we did a job, we built a retaining wall out of railroad ties that was almost a mile long oh, wow. at, a, at a, a place in McKinney. And he dug through the trailer, and uh, the, the tool trailer, and he found the only 12-pound sledgehammer that we had. All the rest were 10s and 8s. He found the only 12-pound one and said, I was only allowed to use that one. And we were driving these 12-inch nails through these railroad ties, to, you know, stacking them up, making a retaining wall. And uh, all summer, that's what I did. And I showed up to school. You'll love this because it's a trombone story. Showed up to school. Uh, and you know how much I love the you trombone. You like the trombone story. It's so my favorite thing. I showed up to school in junior high for seventh grade, and I was standing there in the hallway, and the football coach grabs me, and he's like, are you, are you playing football? No, sir, I play trombone in the band. And he's like, we need to get you signed up for football. And I was like, you know, I just spent all summer swinging a sledgehammer. And I was like, no, sir, I'm in the band. I'll just be in the band. That'll be, that'll be good enough. And so that was it. But they were trying to, trying to get me in there to do that. All uh, right. So you end up down South Texas, Benavides. It's 2003. I go to Benavides. I was there for 18 months. And then I got a promotion job uh, to have my own office in Creso Springs. Still with USDA. Still with USDA doing the same thing. So I was within RCS. And uh, I got a fair bit of animosity out of that because what happened was when I was coming in is right when all the baby boomers were retiring. Yeah. And so a lot of those guys had to wait 10, 15 years to get to the point where they could get the job that I got after 18 months. And the only reason I got the job after 18 months was there was an opening and I put in for it because somebody's got to do it. Nobody else is moving. These guys, they would always get to the point in their career where they would get to the highest job they wanted to get to, and then they would settle down and, and have a home and a family in that town. Previous to that, they'd bounce around Texas or around the country working for the, the government. Once you got to the, you know, the district conservationist or got to where you had your own county, most of them guys would settle down and just stay forever. So jobs didn't come open much, and people didn't move much, and everybody was pretty much settled. But when my crew came through, I was the first GS9 district conservationist in the whole state of Texas, and most of them hated my guts for it in the government because you're too young for that job. You're too. I said, well, who else is going to do it? Right. And, you and then why and did you, and why did they give me the job? Right? right. And you were willing to move, and you see that in oil and gas a lot too. People that are willing to move and bounce around tend to advance quicker than those that are like, well, I'm pretty comfortable where I am. And, yeah. And so it's good to to have that flexibility. So you, so you promote. Now you're in Carrizo Springs. Carrizo Springs ended up with a boss that I couldn't stand. And he didn't like me, and I didn't like him, and we weren't going to get along, and neither one of us wanted to move. Like, I love the town. So this was before, let's see, it was before the whatever the last boom was down there in 07, 08. I'm sure you had stuff going on down there back yeah, then. Yeah, it would have been, uh, been like. It was the, that's the Eagleford, didn't it? Yeah, 08 sucked, so it would have been probably 06, 07. Yeah, so it's right when the boom was fixing to start. Uh, the town was still real small. You still didn't have to wait to turn left anywhere. There was never a line to get tacos in the morning. Everything was chill. Loved it. Uh, the hunting, the people, proximity to the border, it's Mexican great country culture. Down there. The country down there is amazing. Really beautiful. I mean, it's you know, it's scrub brush, semi desert type stuff. I loved it. Uh, my kids were the only white kids in the whole school district for a while. You know, a lot. Of, it was just we we liked it. Uh, and then you know, I just I got to an impasse with this boss. And one of, my, one of my best friends from college was an LDS guy, and the two of us ran around together doing everything. We were in the, the department together studying because he did watershed management, and then we also worked at the sale barn in Navasota together. We'd do like 32 hours from Friday afternoon till Sunday morning every weekend working the sale barn, and then we were in a prison ministry together. We did all kinds of stuff. So he 
was working his way through school as a land surveyor, graduated, realized that with his bachelor's he could work towards becoming a licensed surveyor, and so he went off that trajectory. A couple of years passed. You know, this is four years later. I'm where I really don't like what I'm doing, and I really don't want to sit at USDA for 21 more years. And he, he goes to work for a company, and he's laser scanning for a couple different companies, and they say, went to work for another company out of Norway, and they said, we want you to open an office in Houston, hire people, and get ready to go out and laser scan oil rigs in, in the Gulf of Mexico and start doing stuff in Houston. And so he had a guy working for him, and they were doing it. He did like a third of a million dollars worth of work out of his garage in like half of a year. Oh, wow. You know, and they were fixing to start opening stuff up and getting it moving. And he needed people to go to Norway and work with their guys over there and kind of learn their procedures and their methods and whatever. And so it's the North Sea in the winter, right? Yeah, the North so, Sea period sucks. Yeah. But in yeah. the winter, it really sucks. It was in the winter. And so I'm talking with him, and he said, you know, he said, he said, go get your passport, go get your stuff. He said, you'll be able to figure this out. You're just starting from scratch. You'll be able to figure it out, and, uh, and you'll do well with this, and just, you just need to do it. And just don't tell anybody that, you know, today's day one. Just, just pick it up quick and do it. And so I put in notice at USDA and uh, gave them two weeks. And then the, the schedule for going to Norway was kind of sliding around, so I ended up working for one of the heavy equipment contractors that we did work with, would land, land work with in, at USDA for about a week. And I was laying underneath the belly scraper changing a starter with another guy, and then my cell phone rang, my old Nokia bar phone rang, and, uh, and Don said, uh, he said, we're buying you plane tickets to fly out of Houston on this and such date. He's like, I'll come pick you up, and we're, we're going to drop you off, and you and I are going to go to Norway, and we're going to go work offshore and, and, and go do it. So in the oil field, a lot of people, like, they'll start out on a land rig, and then they'll get off whatever. Like, I went from zero to the, North Sea the in the offshore, winter, yeah. North Sea in offshore, the winter, right in the winter. So, so how did uh, how did Sarah take that when you said, "Hey, listen, I gotta gotta tell you some news. I'm headed to uh, the North Sea." Right. So she she knew all about it. She knew me. She knew that I was not happy at USDA. She knew that I was not going to be happy there for a long time. There's days that I'd be so wound up. Like I had a buddy that had a feed store in Creso, uh, Austin Brady, and and. I would leave the office and I didn't want to go home because I'm just too wound up. And I would go to the feed store and just kind of sit with him and decompress, load feed sacks, do whatever, just something else before I went home. And, and I just kept thinking to myself, you know, this is, a, this is not good. Like you shouldn't right. be somewhere where you have to unwind just to go home, be with your wife yeah, and kids. Yeah, if you weren't Mormon, you go to the bar. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly what it is. I would go have a beer. That's what yeah, it would be, exactly. Right. Or heroin or something, you know. Probably heroin, but uh, so picked you up. You're on a plane now to yeah, so, the North Sea. So we get to the North Sea, and uh, Norwegians are interesting to work with. They're just there's no Type A people in the whole country. Hmm. Nobody carries pocket knives. Like uh, we were in the office, there was a package we were expecting to receive, and it showed up, and everybody's just sitting there looking at it on the de- on the table. And so I pull out my pocket knife, like half the room cleared. He's got a weapon. I was like, no, this is just a pocket knife. This could also be a weapon, though. It could be, but it was just a tool. You know, we're expected to carry these as kids. My (laughs) wife, my (laughs) wife still carries one. Yeah. Uh, So, we do that. One of the one of the interesting stories there was we were doing the the cold water survival, and so it's all the normal Boisett Hewitt stuff. But then there's two extra days of putting on the Gumby suits and doing all that and. And you jump into the to the water in the fjord there that's 36 degrees and feel what it feels like to just have it take the breath out of you. And uh, there was a little Chinese girl engineer. And 
we're walking down to take one of the practicals. We're like, we're in the space Gumby suits. We're walking down to the dock to do one of the practical exercises. And she looks at, 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 uh, at my buddy Don and she's like, I don't know how to swim. And Don looks at her and he says, I don't know if I'm the one you need to tell. You yeah, know, that's a bit of a problem. <laughs> He's like, that's a bit of a problem. Now the suits make you float, but she just doesn't know how to move around in the water. So we did, uh, she tells them we do the stuff. And then further on one of the practicals, we had to swim almost a quarter mile out to uh, some life rafts and then get in them and do all the stuff that's out there and, and do all this and then and bring a guy back that was unresponsive. But I ended up, uh, rescue swimming, dragging the, the Chinese girl all the way out and all the way back because she didn't, she just didn't even know how to move around in the so water. So you ended up actually during your rescue training getting to do a, a live, an actual, actual rescue. rescue. That's yeah. outstanding. Yeah, it was interesting. <clears throat> so, uh, so how long did you, uh, how long did you work out there in Norway? So I did a couple of the first hitch was like nine weeks, and this is getting back to Sarah. She ended up with walking pneumonia and was in the hospital. Oh wow! And so I get a phone call from the missionaries in my congregation because at the time I was the, the the minister for the the Mormon congregation there. I leave town. I get a phone call from or an email or something from the missionaries, and they said Sarah's in the hospital. Everything's okay. And so I pick up the phone and I call them and I was like, okay, let me tell you how hospitals work. Yeah. Like when somebody's in the hospital, that means everything's not okay. Yeah. That means by definition. Yeah, it's not okay. Not okay. Yeah. And so she had walking pneumonia. Uh, and all that was going on, and I'm, you know, however many thousands of miles away, completely helpless to do anything. Yeah, and yeah. I had to, had to fall back on my, you know, my church, my church group and my congregation, and everybody pitched in and helped. But even then, my folks and her folks lived nine hours away from where we lived in Creso, you know, or seven hours from Creso, you know. So yeah. nobody's coming, right? Nobody's coming. And going through that, that was a little bit of a shock. And it's like, man, if I'm going to do this kind of lifestyle, How's this all going to work? And she got through it and got over it. And you know her. She's pretty darn tough and, and yeah. takes care of most everything herself. Um, I was, I was it, shocked that you'd said she'd gone to the hospital. I'd be like, well, that's not the Sarah that I know. But <laughs> she must have really <laughs> <Yeah>. been sick. <laughs> yeah. She must have really been sick. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, that's a definite consideration, especially, you know, you've got to figure out that balance. Because if you don't, and I've seen this in oil and gas, I've been in my entire life, it, you will – your relationships will implode. Yeah. And, and, and having, it, having little kids, too. So, Duke, let's see, oh. in 07 was when I went to Norway. <clears throat> so, Duke was seven and Bear was five. Yeah. I mean, we're talking small. And Skype was around, so I was able to video call from, yeah, the, from the very sucked, beginning. Though. Yeah, it was pretty grainy. It was like looking through a bag of rice. Yeah. But it was, uh, it was workable. And uh, in Norway, every phone on the rig was long distance worldwide capable. You just any phone anywhere you pick up a phone and just call your house and nobody cared. That's so cool. that was kinda nice. Uh I've definitely been on rigs in the Gulf of Mexico that don't have anywhere near that level of connectivity even now. Yeah. Um but going going back and forth, doing that stuff. I did and a couple of hitches. You're, you're doing survey work, right? Three D laser scanning and survey. And so And what's the purpose of that on an offshore platform? So you're reverse engineering everything. You're getting as built. So the platforms we were on were Gulfax Alpha and Gulfax Charlie, two of the biggest the biggest uh, oil platforms in the world, and they're just laser scanning the entire thing. So you build it, and as soon as it gets built, changes start getting made. They change this skid, they change that, they run more pipe, they do this. And so if you're adding more things engineering-wise, they need to know where everything is. And so the laser scanning is capturing everything 3D, plus or minus an eighth of an inch, everywhere but you know everything if you can see it line of sight from the scanner you get the data and you get a model and back then the process was 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 
scan everything, have a giant point cloud that's, you know, multiple terabytes, take that, and then the modelers would sit down, mostly in India, would sit down and go through and make it all into a 3D model. And then that can go into AutoCAD, and then all the pipe designers and engineers can use that to use that to reverse engineer stuff. Um, so doing that. And then my part was running the survey, so using a land survey instrument, but to run control for the scanner. So the scanner's taking all the 3D pictures, and I'm doing the survey and putting targets out for the scanner. So every time we move it, we know where that scan goes relative to all the other scans on the platform, and you can put it all together that way. And that, that technology's changed some over the years, and it's also kind of stayed the same. Um, but you'd never done anything like never that done any prior to being deployed yeah, never to done the any North Sea in the wintertime. So I asked a lot of questions and really screwed down on it, and it ended up being that the second hit that I went out, they had me as a foreman, kind of, sort of. <laughs> and so the guys that I had working with oh, me. Oh, you came back. Yeah. Well, now you're going to be a now foreman. Now you're the boss. Yeah, I got you. So the guys that I had working, Norway was using a lot of guys out of Poland, and all these guys had gone to college for land survey. Like, they actually went to school to be surveyors. <laughs> yeah, they, they were good. Well, well, well they, knew, they should know what they're doing. Sort of, except for when you're offshore, nothing can be level. Everything's moving around. Nothing can be level. And so all the normal land survey techniques don't work. There and this go. is actually the big thing that separates me and what I do and the dimensional control guys from land surveys. We use the same equipment, different software, different techniques. And so some of these guys couldn't unplug from what their schooling was. And it's like, okay, we're not doing that. And so one of the biggest benefits that I had was straight out of the box, never having done it, never having done land survey, never having worked on it. And so I had no preconceptions of how I'm supposed to be going about doing this. You know, there are some advantages to being completely ignorant to yeah. things. You can, yeah. a lot of times, some of the best ideas originate out of that. Like, well, hey, do this. We can't do that. Why not? Yeah, and so. And it turns out you can most of the yeah, time. Yeah, and my buddy Don, that he, he's been a licensed land surveyor for a while now, uh, when he hires people to do the type of work that I do, he on purpose goes and gets guys from outer space. He just goes and gets guys from out of left yep. field. We don't want land surveyors because they, they have a bunch of hangups and a bunch of procedures that they just, they really have a hard time unplugging from that. And it's detrimental to the quality of work the way that, the way that we do yeah, it. And also I found that a lot of times if you hire somebody that's a hitter, even if they don't have the knowledge for the job, They'll figure that out, yeah. and they're an amazing employee as a result. So you come back, hitch two, you're the, the, a foreman. That hitch goes well. Then what? Did, uh, came back and did a couple of jobs with Don here, and then went back and did one more. And, uh, and that was other, one of the things that, they, that was interesting while we were there was just getting stuff done. And offshoreism is, wonder, is absolutely wonderful because like, it's everything. There's... A hardware store. It's not a store, but there's just everything. There's the warehouse. There's right, the machine right. shop. Like everything is there. It's a city. Yeah, because nobody's because <laughs> you can't leave. Yeah, nobody's coming. And when the weather's bad and you can't get out, you know things have to keep going. We have to keep making money. We have Correct. to keep everything. All the wells have to flow. And so I just ask. And this is one of the things being raised by my mom uh, was she was just always interested in doing new things. She was always interested in whatever. And she would just ask, just ask, just ask people, just do, just, just ask questions, do whatever. And so I kept getting things accomplished that all these guys in Norway had been working for all this time. And all the Polish guys, you know, they were all good guys. They were all nice to work with. But the, the three, three generations of communism hadn't done them any good. There's no type A personalities. Nobody asked any, any questions. Just kind of waiting to be told what to do. And that's what they, yeah, all kind of stuff like that would happen. Like we all had radios. I'd be in the office with radio. 
and and I'd get caught up on what I'm doing, and I would go take a cruise walking around. We had two or three survey crews working on the platform, and I'd go see them. And the one time I got down there, and they were sitting in the in the drill mud room, and they were just sitting on sacks. And I was like, what are y'all doing? And they're like, we got to a, a stopping point, and we don't know what to do. Call me on the radio. Well, we don't want to interrupt you. You know, and it's just, and it's, and it's not, it, it's, a, it's a cultural thing that comes right. from, being in a place where your neighbor's going to turn you into the to the to the secret. It's police. interesting too. They're probably not lazy people. They just, no, they, they were really they, hard. They just don't want to. They were get hi- in trouble. <laughs> yeah, they were highly intelligent guys. Yeah. that knew how to how to do this stuff, and they, and and you know they yeah they and they were all hard workers. Like when, as long as the task was in front of them, they were grinding on it. Sure. Right. But as soon as any 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 anomaly popped up, like it just shut them down, and. You know, so and that I could that was hard for me to get to, to realize like how those guys work. And then the Norwegians were different; they were didn't want to be confrontational. And that that show, I'm sure you knew about it. Was it Black Gold? One of the Discovery Channel shows that had all yeah. the idiot redneck drillers. Yeah, a couple of those guys actually lived below me, right, uh, in an apartment below uh, when I was in college. And they were absolute morons. And I was like, hey, they, we don't really do it like that anymore. Right. That's kind of funny. Yeah, we're not throwing chain. So maybe some places are, but yeah. the rigs that I've been on no. mostly are not. No. So that show was out when I was in Norway, right? And so we'd go in to a safety briefing or get to the platform and get briefed in, do all the stuff, the, whatever the little onboarding. And they would come in and they'd say, okay, we're not, we're, you're not in Texas. And they're real condescending. <laughs> you're not in Texas. We're not doing it like that. It's like that's a TV show with a bunch yeah. of idiots. And we so, don't do that in Texas either. Yeah. It's yeah. like <laughs> they only do that on the Discovery Channel. So, right. uh, I really got hot one time. I had a Polish guy who was down in the, in, the, in, the, in the cellar deck. And the way that this platform worked had big concrete legs on it. And they would pump the crude oil into the leg and pump seawater out. Mm. And they would just keep moving it around like that. And they would use that for the storage. Well, you get H2S gas with that. And so I can't remember what his name was. Let's just say Jacob. He was down there. And he comes on the radio in the cellar deck and I can hear his H2S monitor going off through the radio <laughs> and he wants permission to leave. Yeah. Right. Hey, hey Jacob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, just go. I was like, where are you at? And he's like, I'm in the cellar deck and we're in the H2S monitor just blaring through the radio. And I was like, leave, get out of there. Go ahead and leave now. Don't take the gear, just leave. And so I go down there and I go find them. And of course, after them being condescending to me for two weeks, you just gassed a guy of mine who we have an open work permit to be in the cellar deck, and you guys are venting H2S gas right. on me. I went nuts, right? So they Rightfully had so. everybody was there, and they had the big group of people in the meeting. This big, like the weekly safety meeting. Does anybody else have anything I want to talk about? I raised my hand. Sure do. They cleared the room out because they didn't want anybody else to hear this, and I lost it on them. I was like, you can't. I was like, never come to me with an attitude like this. If you're going to, with an open work permit, y'all are going to vent H2S when I got a guy down there. Yeah, hey, hey, guess what we don't do in Texas? <laughs> yeah. We kill, don't do that. We don't kill Polish surveyors with yeah. H2S gas. We, not a, yeah, we don't do that. So at some point in this, I imagine you're, you're thinking, man, On I, my I own. can do this myself. So that's really kind of the scary thing about all of it. So. Having health insurance is a big deal. So I, yeah. I worked for I worked for one company, and then I went to work for another company, and we moved to Houston, went to work for a couple more companies doing all this. Don and I worked together, and then I went to work for uh, Intertech, which they've got a booth here somewhere. But I went to work for Intertech, great company, a lot of the old Scottish guys that uh, started 
dimensional control as we practice it now because of the Piper Alpha accident in the North Sea. So they said, okay, we got to get all the hot work, all the welding, all the prefabrications got to be done on the beach. We have to have a way to accurately 3D measure all of the stuff that we're going to build to fit in here. So when we take it out, it'll bolt up like Legos and everything goes together and we don't have to be doing all the welding all that. So you know Piper Alpha mm -hmm. is the biggest, the biggest offshore of oil disaster. Uh, so and it, and it became out of that. And I was lucky enough to go to work for, for HiCad Intertech at the time. And, and I asked all the questions. I was the nosy guy. I wanted to know how to do this, wanted to know how to do that. I, you know, get into the tech. How does the equipment work? All this, you know, why do we do this? Why do we do that? Developing some of my own tools. Um, and then I just didn't get pay raises and promoted, basically. And so then I went to work for another company that did hydrographic survey when I left there. So we were doing the dimensional control work, but it was setting up hydrographic survey boats. So doing sonar alignments, navigation system alignments, all that stuff on on ships that, that go out and do sonar scanning of the seafloor. So it was dimensional control work, but it was a whole other aspect. And those guys have a booth, two booths over, and I've already said hi to them. So that was UTEC, part of Acteon. Um, and I worked for them. And then getting towards the end of that, my buddy Don had now rotated through several companies, and he had investors, and they brought him in as, you know, 24.5% owner and started a company called Truth. And he said, as soon as we get it up and rolling, he said, I want you to come manage the dimensional control department. You know, we want to grow a company and do all this. So I want to work for them. And that went gangbusters for two years. And then in 2015, we had the slump and everything was Along getting with pruned everybody back else. with everybody else. Yeah, everybody else. And so everything was getting pruned back and I ended up getting downsized. So I already had all my equipment. I already had a whole bunch of stuff. The only thing I didn't have was a software and I had a client call me and say, we need you to go out on a trans-ocean drill ship and fix a derrick. And I said, I don't work there anymore. And this particular guy, rope access guy, I had been through this with him before, switching different companies. He'll call me and say, you know, we need you to go do whatever. And I'm like, I, 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 I don't work there. I work somewhere else. He's like, oh, crap. You know, what do you do? Well, I do the same thing. He's like, okay, get in the truck and start driving to Fushan and give me your boss's phone number so that we can get all the commercial stuff figured out while yep. you're driving. Because yep. it's like, we need you there five minutes ago. Right. So that had happened with the same guy before, and now we're doing it again. And well, he's like... Only you don't have a, I work here now. Yeah, he says, uh, he says, where do you work now? And I was like, I don't work anywhere. And he's like, well, don't you own your own gear? And I was like, I own all my own gear, but I don't have any software. And the software is like $20,000. It's, oh, wow. it's not insignificant. And he said, okay, I'm going to push him back three days three or four days, get it figured out, and we need you on a helicopter in, you know, to leave Fushan to go down and go do this job. He's like, get it figured out. And so, so now, I sat down with Sarah. I was going to say, so now you get to go to Sarah and go, yeah. hey, listen. I sat down with Sarah I and I said. I just lost my job, but I need 20 grand. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what do you, she's like, well, what do you think? And, you know, she's really conservative about everything. She's way better at money than me. All of our money handling is her. All the finding, all the stuff, all the insurance, all everything. She does all that. And if it wasn't for her, I'd be screwed. Uh, but she says, um, "We got a guy. We got a guy trying to trying to camp out." Any rate, uh, you know, we talked about it for a day or so, and she just said she was just completely at peace with it. You know, kind of a pray about it, think about it, whatever. And she's like, "I'm just completely." I'm completely at peace with this. Let's do it. Right. Right. So, so that's awesome. <clears throat> and so we did. So I went out on a trans-ocean ship and, uh, and fixed the derrick, and I made two months' worth of money in 10 days, and I thought, hmm, maybe this will 
Maybe yeah. this is going to happen. Might be something work. to this. Yeah. So, I mean, like she said. So, my, this was 2015. Yeah, 2015. So, March 2015, a couple weeks before my birthday. <laughs> so, uh, like she says, when I went to work at Truth and I was the department manager and I was writing the proposals, I was doing all the quotes, I was doing all the bidding, she said, you know, if it was meant to be, that was the last step that I needed. She's like, yeah. I knew how to do the work, knew how to do the stuff, and knew how to manage crews, do yeah. whatever yeah, needed to be done. You were being trained to run a company. Yeah, and the last step is the, the, the desk job part of it, which is doing the quotes, doing the stuff. I knew what the competitive rates were because I was the one writing the quotes. I just, now I'm writing the same quotes for the same prices, but it's coming, the check's got my name on it, right? Yep. And, uh, and so we did that, and it's been up and down, and I, and, Previous to that, working at all the companies I was at, they had a narrow focus. So you can do alignment surveying for all kinds of stuff, paper mills, steel mills, you know, uh, uh, saw mills. You can do any kind. You know, I've done aerospace, tool and die, uh, jig building for Boeing and Triumph airplanes and Gulfstream airplanes, you know, all kinds of stuff, bridges, uh, cranes, inspection, all different now, things. All that and stuff's so, land-based, though, and, and the majority of what I see you doing is all offshore on boats and stuff is, that's, yeah. that's not uh, stationary. It's moving. And, that, and part of that is the, the, the technique and the software that, that I use and the way that I go about doing what I do allows me to work unlevel. So how did and, you find so – so obviously you kind of cut your teeth on uh, offshore platforms, but you say you did a tremendous amount of stuff that was you know, land-based. How did you sort of begin to – uh, do you still do a bunch of land-based stuff or no? I do anything that they're going to cut me a check <laughs> to do. Whatever you're going to call me to do. Anything that my phone rings, I'll do any of it. And so uh, the land stuff, I mean, some of that was working at like, it come, some of the companies I worked at before. Mm -hmm. And then I just talk to a lot of people, try to meet a lot of people. Try to, I'm always trying to get into something. I've got a couple of companies that do crane inspections and crane repair. And I do overhead cranes for them. I met those guys. I went and presented a few years ago at the... Uh, at the Crane Certification Association of America, I went and went and presented to them and talked about all that. And so I've got a group of those guys that I do. I've got a couple of colleagues that kind of specialize in bridges, so I've ended up doing some work on bridges. Uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, they they had a big three arch bridge that was going to be the brand new, like focal point, visual focal point for the town. And uh, they fabricated it in San Angelo, and then they took it out, and they're building the arches one at a time out you know, out there. And I got a phone call from one of the companies that I do work with, and they said, we need you to go out there and shoot this these arches because they're all screwed up. And they'd already had, like, the mayor and the ribbon cutting and the full blunt with the news, all of it, right? And uh, they said, uh, you know, we're, we're, we need you to go out there and shoot in this bridge. You know, it's pretty contested, so you got – Alabama and the contractors right, and all right, these different right. people fighting over who screwed up what how and I shot it, I shot it in and gave the you know gave the information for the report and it's like yeah it's got to come down like mm. the that that arch has got to come down and so I bet they were happy to get that report yeah and they I they were uh, and weren't I bet with my big Texas A and M sticker on the back window of my truck when I'm out there doing the doing that job but that was with uh, had my son Duke with me for that it's been yeah that is one thing I'll say it's been cool to see and, and no I know your family a bit I don't know your boys as well obviously you know they were kind of going moving on in life a bit when we became as close as we are but uh that's one thing i will say it's it's really cool to see because when you can you take sarah with you your boys would go with you oh yeah and so you're teaching them you know a skill set but you're also teaching them the value of hard work and those types of yep. things and uh and i think that's an invaluable lesson i mean my dad's owned business in my whole life i grew up much like you said you know eight years old 
riding around on a forklift or with a, a hoe in my hand, hoeing right. weeds at yep. the shop, you yep. know, that kind of stuff. Nothing glamorous for sure. No. Uh, and he'd pay me a little bit or he'd take But me it's to, work. Yeah, it's absolute but work. But it's work. And it's also, you know, dad owns a company. Yep. And some people, their dad owns a company and so he's got more money and he gets to do whatever. But all the little stuff still has to be done. You still have to clean toilets. You still have to take out the trash. All Absolutely. that stuff still has to be yeah, done. Yeah, my mom did all that, actually. Right. It was kind of, uh, you know, it's very much the, a similar mindset. And so so take being able to take the boys with me has been incredible. Like, that's, that is, like, one of my absolute joys as a father. And then I've had, because Duke, so the older one's Duke, he wants to go off and do IT cybersecurity, and that's where he's focusing. He's got a room full of computers. He's doing all that stuff. So I have a client that we do third-party, uh, well, it's actually client rep navigation uh, checks on for, for, for ships. So a drill ship, we set up a, a whole completely separate navigation system uh, for, the, for the center of the well. So when they go out to spud in and, and, and start a new oil well, Exxon, BP, Shell, whoever it is, that company has a representative there that says, okay, we're putting, the, we're putting it on X marks a spot, right? It's where it is. So I do helping set up some of the equipment, the dimensional work to get all that set up and get the GPS antennas and all that on there. But then there's an IT aspect to that. And they hit a deal about three years ago, they hit a deal where they were out of people and they needed to do the IT part of it, right? And so Duke has got his offshore survival. He's been surveying, he's doing all this stuff. And they said, uh, they said, they called me and said, Austin, can you go put some stuff in the server rack? And hook up the laptop and ping it and do all this matrix stuff. And, I, and I, I'm like, no, I don't. I can't do that. No, but I know somebody. And I said, but my kid can do it. And I said, uh, I said so let's, uh, let's put Duke in the ring. You know, and it was, uh, he's 20, 20 or 21, and it was $750 a day if he worked at all and $500 a day travel standby, which is just mad money for a kid that age, right? It's pretty good money for anyone. Yeah, and so he, he ends up going out and doing a couple, two or three jobs and just knocking it out of the park. And then BP Thunder Horse, which is, is, is another uh, semi-sub, kind of like the BP Horizon, kind of, sort of, but it's a production platform as well. That one needed to have a whole new system put on it, everything fixed and done. And uh, uh, I took Duke and put him in the truck and drove him down to Houston, and he got on a plane and flew to New Orleans. Uber picked him up, took him to the hotel. The next morning, Hotshot picked him up, took him to the helicopter. He flew offshore, was out there. Met with all the people, had all the meetings, talked to the platform manager, talked to the IT guys, did everything, took all the pictures, wrote a 25-page report, and they pitched it to BP. BP signed off on it, and then three months later, we went out to do the install. So the crew was me and Duke, and I was there to do my little part. Duke was in charge. And then there was two IT guys from another company and then two electricians. And we're pulling all the GPS antenna cables and doing all this, and putting it all together and Cat5 cables and all this and setting up all the different computer stations that have all navigate. It's live navigation and live ROV feed, everything. So the BP reps can just sit in their office in Houston and see everything real time. Right. And about two days into the job, you know, right off the bat, they figured out that Duke was my son. And that, that's pretty cool. Not everybody gets to go offshore with their boy. No, that's true. And, uh, and then a, a little bit after that, they, uh, they figure out, they're like, wait a minute, Duke's in charge. I was like, right. And all the rest of us had kids the age of Duke. And that was like the proud dad moment, you know, all over the place. It's like, you know, he's, he did the whole thing. For sure. You know. So, so you, you found Pisano in, in 2015. Here it is, 2023. What have you learned along the way 
if you had to pick up one overarching thing that you say, hey, man, this is something that absolutely I wish I'd have known that you know now, what would it be? Well, a couple of them, when people ask me that, one of the things is a tiny business owner, right off the bat, pay GoDaddy or whoever and get a real website, even if you don't launch a website. Get a real website domain name and get a real website domain name email address. You wouldn't believe how many people think I'm a big company just because I have Austin at PaisanoDC.com. Absolutely. Right? And then, you know, and it blows me away the companies that I go do work for that they're multi-million dollar 50, 60 people companies, and they're still using Gmail accounts for everybody. Like blows you can me use away. a Gmail account and just have it ghost or have it forward they to don't even, They don't even ghost it. This is just they're handing out a Gmail account. Yeah, no, I would agree. The other big deal that I tell people, and this is the, all the phone calls that I got after I had left places, was I never, I never accepted a company phone. And back in the early days, I'd say, well, I'll take a stipend. You can pay me by the month to use my phone. And they'll say, well, no, and I'll say, it's okay, I'll just use my phone. And I did that. And that same phone number, that phone number is written with Sharpie on neighbor's rigs in West Texas. And they'll call me, you know, in the middle, in the middle of the afternoon. They'll say, are you the guy that levels rigs? Yeah, I'm the guy that sure levels am. rigs. Can you be here tomorrow? Sure can. Right? And it's because I never changed the phone number. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Uh, you know, I had a boss tell me a while back, this was over 10 years ago, that his, his belief was that uh, in X number of years, Nobody would have company-provided phones. Everybody used their personal. And I was like, why would you ever do that? And that's true, man. Uh, it, that's, it, it's less common, I think, now to have a company phone than it is to have your own personal phone. And I agree, you know, that those contacts stay in that phone. Yeah, and the new Apple, the new Apple phones where you can put both SIM cards in there and have your company yeah. and all pumped in. Well, so what's next for Austin, for the Blaney's, for Pisano? So the big thing has been, now that both of the boys are out on missions and out of the house, Sarah no longer needs to be mama bear at the house. And she's got a degree in engineering. She's, she's highly capable. So we've been taking, she's been going with me. We sent her out to get a Twic and sent her to get all the basic safety and went, you know, went clothes shopping to get a half wardrobe of FR clothes. And so she's been in refinery. She didn't already have all that. <laughs> right. Honestly, knowing her. <laughs> so she's been in, on refinery jobs. She's been on boat jobs with me now. Haven't gone offshore. Actually, I don't even know what the rules are on that. I don't know if they would let a husband and wife go offshore together. Just I don't if there's know why a, they wouldn't. Well, if there's an accident, both of you. I mean, I it's, I don't know. But uh, make finding your point of contact nice. Yeah, easy. So that's that's one of the big things too. Is that uh, as a, as a one man show basically having all my own equipment. I don't rent equipment. I own all the equipment. Do all that. I have quite a few customers that they know on short notice. They got to call me. Because the bigger companies that offer dimensional control, it has to go through to get a PO, to get this, to get that. It's got to go to this. We've got to get it quoted from here. It's got, and it takes, you know, 36, 72 hours to get a quote out, and the job needs to happen in five minutes. Like, yeah. You know. Yeah, and by, and by the end of them getting the quote out, you're already 36 hours into the job. Yeah, or the job's done. Like, <laughs> right, some of the right. jobs, it's two, it's two hours of work. It's like, right. can you be here as fast as humanly possible right. and just get it done and be done with it? And so... That's helped quite a bit. Um, I have no interest in growing a company, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. it's really difficult to scale what I do because it's so specialized. And a lot of the work that I do, there's not, there's not POB on board. Uh, they're not going to get work visas to go overseas for, for me to take an extra person with me. So it's just me. And then I might have somebody that's there that helps me as a helper or whatever. So there's a lot of stuff that I do that I can't take somebody with me to get OJT. It's just really hard to do that 
Um, I also just have a big fear of having to having to keep pay, having to make payroll. Yeah. I've got a couple of guys working through me now as pass through on a couple of projects, and it, it it's a uh, it's a stressful deal to try to to try to be coming up with all that, and I have to wait have to wait to get paid to pay them and and all this, and I just I'm just not as interested. I I I feel like I'm more nimble if it's me and the boys. You know, when the boys get married, if they want to keep working, we'll have to have that discussion and see how that's going to work. If their wives want to put up with that type of lifestyle, I don't suggest it. Most everybody that wants to get into doing what I do, I don't talk to them. I talk to their girlfriend or their wife. And I'm like, you realize that yeah. you don't know when you're leaving. You don't know when you're coming back. You're there till it's done. And even when you say you're coming back, half the time they it, say, it they say no, yeah, you're not. Yeah, and so. <clears throat> it is definitely uh, something that, you know, oil and gas is that way in general, and my wife's been with me forever, so she's used to used to that. And and I mean, none of us could be successful without their support. So no. it's it's outstanding. And, and now that you're able to to take Sarah with you, it's been uh, that's it's, that's even more helpful. And she's deadly accurate surveying. Like I just yeah. never even have to think about you know with the quality of work that she's doing. It might be a little slower because she's she's getting started with smart it. Or, no, I wouldn't. I, that's 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 a that's, that, that's get your throat punch kind of stuff. Well, I know you needle her. She might accidentally knee me in the face or something. Uh, but man, I really uh, I really appreciate you coming to OTC, to sitting down, having a conversation with us. Uh, I've been wanting to, you know, have this conversation with you for a while and kind of get your extended story. And and um, I do appreciate it. I know they're kind of crowding up here, but uh, yeah, I think it, they're fixing to have the big hoopla. That's fine. They can do that. It's not nearly as important as this. No, 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 no. But uh, but I really do appreciate what what uh, your story and, and you coming here to, to share it with us. One more funny story, if I can give you just a teeny one. Please do. So my logo is the Roadrunner and the Rattlesnake. You know, right. it says Paisano. And so I'm at a gas. I'm driving up to Dallas to go see Dad. I'm at a gas station in Ennis, and this old Mexican man pulls up on the other side of the pumps from me, and he jumps out all in Spanish. He says, "Do you have the birds with you now?" <laughs> right? And I'm thinking. And I just say, yes. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, sure. Why That's not? what I tell me. I got him. I'll see, let's see where this goes, right? I'm like, yeah. And so he said, the snakes are getting into my chickens, and they're eating the eggs, and they're killing the little baby <laughs> chickens and all this stuff. And he said, can you bring the birds, bring, the, bring so your roadrunners out to kill my, you know, take care of my snake problem. So he had a current snake problem he was hoping you could R- solve. Right. And so he thought from the logo on my door with the roadrunner that that was my business. Like I had a cage full of roadrunners, and I would just show up and do roadrunner pest control on 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 call and i thought there's a better way to get rid of snakes than but that but if you could have that as a job and make ends meet outstanding who would not do that right that would be that would be something <laughs> that's a funny that story be, though that would be in texas everybody yeah uh but no austin thanks again for for coming to otc being a part of this conversation and uh, i can't wait to share your story with everybody else and it's good i've been listening to these since you started doing them and uh the other one too that what was the other podcast the mission did. zero mission zero i was listening yeah. to those as well and it's been good to been good to make this have the stars align and be able to do this and tell tell some more story well i appreciate so. it well enjoy the rest of the show man i uh, i'm gonna walk around here a little bit and see what kind of swag i can find i gotta go run into some of my old colleagues and see who's who's up to what around here but they'll, uh thanks for the opportunity something. absolutely thanks so much man yep take care 